So Preeti Taneja is a writer, human rights reporter, and currently teaches uh, literature as well in prisons. A novel, We That Are Young, reimagines and transfers the story of King Lear to modern-day Delhi, and it won the Desmond Elliott uh, Prize this year. Welcome, Preeti Taneja. of weeks ago um, in Gujarat went up the now the world's tallest statue, the Statue of Unity. Um, <laughs> what do you make of that? A tall statue, the grandest statue in the world located in the heart of India. I don't, I don't really trust um, gestures of grandiosity like that and I think that they provide a kind of distraction. Um, so we're all looking up while on the ground something else is going on completely. Um, and, and when that kind of cognitive dissonance is being perpetrated by a state, I think you have to ask yourself, um, you know, to be more watchful and to be more wary about how the shadow of that statue is falling and whereabouts in it you're standing. That's great, the shadow of that statue. I like... But the interesting thing there is that... In, so India, the India that's familiar to me, um, and I think also to you, feels, not just India, but certainly India, premised a lot on these kind of grand declarations of adoration, love understood as a grand declaration of um, acquiescence and adoration. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because this idea that, you know, in this, this, this kind of concept of being Sare Jahan Se Acha, better than the whole world is really ingrained in Indian nationalism. But it's just a distilled version and a reactionary version of something that's, that's come from a beautiful poem and been soldered on to an idea of Hinduism and a country that has a religious um, nationalism to it, which is becoming more and more violent and more and more misogynistic and more and more, and more, and more expressed in society today, and that is very dangerous, I think, to link that idea of love to love of a nation-state that, that has also this kind of religious and right-wing aspect to it. Drawing that connection, then, with, with, with the, with the um, play of King Lear, almost what incites, what sets off the whole chain of events of that tragedy is Lear expecting and demanding, wanting his daughters to demonstrate that kind of love. And when one of them doesn't, the other two so clearly, clearly doing it at some surface level, when one of them doesn't, it kicks off. The love test that begins that play is a division of land predicated on women's obedience. And the, the language of the love test which is actually just a performance because the country's already... He's already decided who's going to get what. It's just a sort of narcissistic performance. Um, ask these women to express how much they love him in public. So it's like, press the button, love comes out. But it's actually duty, and it's about honour, and honour of the family. But the really interesting thing for me is that this love um, to gain land is, is couched as dowry, where... The, the, the woman is being passed from the father to the husband, 
with this parcel of land that's, that's supposed to be her um, sort of key to being married well. And we don't really have that so much in the UK anymore. Um, the dowry. The dowry aspect. Yeah. I mean, it, it's more insidious in a way. It's like, yes. you, you know, marry well or whatever. You, you, you sort of <laughs> the, syst- the system hasn't got the same language, but it, but it sort of still exists. And in India, dowry is actually an illegal practice because of the violence that it imposes on the female body, um, where women who are married um, with not enough dowry, a lot of strain is placed on families, murders happen, ki- there's a thing called kitchen fires, where um, the, the sort of spate of women dying in the kitchen because their sari caught fire was so high that actually it became obvious it was linked to um, that she hadn't brought enough dowry with her or her, the demands weren't being met and, and so on and so on. And, and yet... And the other aspect to this is that when you think about the division of a kingdom that is done in this way over women's bodies, I also start to think about the ways in which women were um, pawns in partition and that violence, where it was so much to do with honour of family and of nation-state that women were killed by men of their own families to stop them from being raped and or married or abducted and taken by men of the other religion. And, and when honour goes that far, one has to wonder, is it really worth it? Well, it's, you use the word honour and duty twice. Those, neither of those things are meaningfully demonstrations of either. They're kind of performances yeah. of both, aren't they? It's expected duty, it's demanded duty, and the performance of, of honour. In your first book, the... Um, Kulkum Malhotra, um, this Indian woman who is almost caught up in this performance, an ex- set of expectations, both from her family and her country, has this sudden realisation, comes across to me, sudden realisation in encountering a, the, the skull of a, um, um, a dead animal on her suburban street. The kind of, almost as if the curtain falls down and she sees it, sees something, the disconnect between her experience and the reality. Kumkum is an interesting figure in many ways. It's a small story, really. There's um, um, just a very sort of domestic story of a, of a woman um, who lives in Nizamuddin, an old part of Delhi. Um, and what happens to her is, is the ways... Is she comes up again and again against the ways in which patriarchy keeps her in place. And one of those ways is just a very simple bond of marriage, um, where, where the word bond again, which is in the love test scene in King Lear, um, I love you according to my bond, no more, no less. And that kind of idea of bond has to do with shackles, and it has to do with bondage, and it has to do with the financial bond and the promise as well. So because of their economic situation, she's kind of kept in place by patriarchy, by by the fact that she didn't bring very much money to this marriage, and and she has no control over, over the environment that she's in in that way. I want to ask you what happens then there, where you're taking a culture which is, on the surface of it, very different to this one in Middle England and translating it or or, bringing it to light, showing us it. What is the the, um, process and the work involved in doing that truthfully? I'm struck, particularly in We That Are Young, that you make, you give no, there's no index of explanations about often you're going into you know, Delhi vernacular or just frank Hindi and it's just 
we as readers have to hear it and make sense of the story rather than you explaining what that is? For me, that's an act of compassion, um, and that is something that um, I think would surprise some people because this book has been called an angry book, um, and all of the politics around brown women or black women being angry that that word carries. Um, but I don't feel like when I write, I want to have to explain because to do so is to decide on a reader, and I don't really want to do that so much because I'm a hybrid person, and so are all of my readers with different experiences of the world and different experiences of language and different ways of thinking about language and speaking many languages all of the time. Um, what I really wanted to do on the page was to represent the fact that these characters just talk to each other. They don't need to explain what a chapati is or something like that. They, when, when that's necessary, it's very, very clear. But there is, an, there is a kind of politics of writing and the aesthetics of doing that, to put it on the page and just say, this is how it is, and let's all try to understand that, you know, I grew up in a multilingual household, I was born in this country, this is, this is a true representation of that world. But not just, not just this is how it is, but actually then the responsibility is on us to tune into the human story regardless, yeah? That the human story comes out, surfaces, regardless of you having to explain it or not because of the way it's told. Right. And it's interesting because you then, you've talked a lot about, you, you clearly, um, Shakespeare's important to you. And I know you've, you've said in the past that, this is great quoted here, I began to feel that Shakespeare had somehow been to India. So when you'd kind of read Lear, you thought, holy cow, he's describing <laughs> Delhi. Yeah? Um, what I saw when I first studied Lear at school at 17 wasn't so much Shakespeare's been to India, but that Shakespeare was talking about partition. <laughs> and that was the first time I had ever heard that subject discussed in the classroom at 17 years old, doing English literature A-level, with this fantastic teacher who just broke open this language for me and, and showed me that there were these layers to it which one could take and make one's own. Um, it made me start to think that the stories and the kind of disconnect between my home life, which was quite not traditional in, in sort of... Well, it was quite traditional, OK, I'll, I'll admit it. But there was language, there was food, there was clothes, there was all sorts of things that were going on inside the house that did not exist outside. I grew up in a, in a small town. Um, it was quite divided ethnically. And um, on, the, on the sort of what we call the white side of that and the middle-class side of that. And so... It was thrilling for me to suddenly see at the centre of the English canon that there was a play that made sense of how a country could be divided and that this love test was predicated on the idea of divide and rule because that is what mm. Leah sets up his daughters mm. for, to say, you know, if you tell me how much you love me, then I'm going to set you in competition with, with each other. Mm. And the other, I mean, the other part of what... In, in telling the story and not having to explain it, is you're, you are demonstrating, or certainly it comes across to me, that there's a political and social continuity with the landscape that you're rendering in this book and the world that we inhabit here. Absolutely. And that landscape and the, the psychology of that landscape has its roots in empire. Um, this isn't just a book which sets King Lear in India because... 
you know, that, that's an interesting thing yeah. to do, even yeah. though there was a puzzle to that that I wanted to solve at the, at the linguistic level and the plot level and, and the thematic level. But it's also to do with the fact that there Shakespeare was taken to India as part of the kind of colonizer's soft power, the civilizing mission, to create this class of men who were Indian in blood and color and English in, in, in taste and sensibilities. And so the men of, and some of the women of my parents, my grandparents' generation of a certain much more wealthy class can quote reams of Shakespeare because they learned to recite it at school. And, you know, when I was going to India for holidays or whatever, there would be parties and in the evenings um, people would get to the end of the night and they'd and, and sit around and, and do this sort of recitation as a kind of performance. And it's, and it's pitch perfect. So that, so that somehow I began to think about the links between the, the geography of the mind and the tongue and how those things work together where I was passing in two different worlds. And as I began to research the book um, and my own sort of reasons for writing it, I realized that the town I grew up in, Letchworth Garden City, is actually um, one of the blueprints, architectural blueprints for New Delhi. And Ebenezer Howard, who is the founding father of Letchworth, um, and it's a very small place, um, formulated this idea of a garden city with radial streets and, and roundabouts and, and houses and squares and so on, which was part of the arts and crafts movement, which then inspired Lutchins when he built New Delhi. And that's the city that my father grew up in. Um, he was a young boy in, in the kind of fringes of Lutchins' New Delhi. Um, and then when he came to Letchworth, he just felt like he was sort of in a place he could recognize but he didn't know that that link existed. But you're also saying, or I am hearing, okay, so we've got, you know, Garden Lutchins, New Delhi, but it rests on a bedrock of people carrying rocks in plimsolls and barefooted, and some terrible violence is inflicted on, on the, um, the servants, for instance, in this book. But you're saying to me, and I'm hearing it, Okay, you can say, oh, India, it's lovely, but, you know, I can't stand the poverty or that, the class divide. But you're saying, look in the mirror. I think, yeah, I think I am. I mean, the book's really, it, it may be set in India, but it's really about neo-colonialism and, um, and, and power that comes from having money and being part of an elite. And it's something that I think about a lot because I work with some of the most deprived people in society, people who are incarcerated, um, and I've worked in refugee parts of the world um, and in conflict and post-conflict zones, and I've listened to a lot of very difficult stories of people trapped in systems. And I began to, and I began to think about why I don't read enough literature that takes, takes it from the top and tries to think about what we all kind of know but really don't say that our lives are sort of caught up in an economic system that is perpetrated by a very small number of people um, who maintain that border quite fiercely. And that is true in India as it is in other places. And so the book is told from the point, from the point of view of like inside the very wealthy elite. Um, it, it's caused quite a lot of <laughs> outrage, in, in fact. India. 
it, yes, yeah. among that elite um, in different, uh, different parts of the diaspora as well as here. And I've been called outrageous for doing it, yeah. as, if I, as if one should always be good and be quiet yeah. and just buy, buy a laptop and not think too much about it, you know. Do you think you'd have had the same response if you were an Indian man writing it? There's so many complicated nuances to this. Would it have and been one of them is a passport. Um, if I had been born there and grown up there in a certain class mm. as an elite man, I don't think I would have had some of the responses. You probably wouldn't have wanted to write it, though, either. I don't know. Mm. There may be a man out there who would do it, but, but it he would be risking a lot to do it. But the relationship, then, between... What, you know, where are we with the whole business of sex in modern India and the relationship between men and women? Yes, dowries now, um, illegal. But it still happens. Yeah. yeah. And the differential, the, the kind of, what, you know, in, in Kulkul Malhotra, even though so we move on a generation and um, a younger member has just got married and ends... The story ends, sorry to bust the bubble, with her facing out to this congregation of people who are waiting now for her to adopt the same role. Yeah. Um, well, I think generational damage is, is, is really important for us to, to identify and the ways in which we fall back into patterns of behaviour because they feel, they feel embedded and we don't even know that we're doing it sometimes. Um, the myths that we inherit about what's right behaviour and what's wrong behaviour and how to be civilised are often some of the most violent. And, um, and so the story is really trying to navigate that. Um, and you've talked about, I mean, we've titled this session Compassion. You've talked about how you admire, in a way you've talked about Shakespeare, admiring his compassion in the way he um, has the capacity to imagine anyone from any background or class or culture into the position of the other. And that your as a writer, in fact, just to present this world without judgment, to lay it open for us to see, in a way is an act of attempt at compassion. I hope so, because I don't think that you can write books which have a lot of power or passion to them without feeling love and without feeling compassion, even if they're incredibly angry books. Love or for whom? Well, love for the world that you're writing about and love for the world in general and for human beings and their potential to do good. I mean, the, the people that I teach um, have done the most awful crimes that challenge me when I teach them um, all of the time. And, and yet, they are not just the thing that they've done. They are part of a system that has forced them into that. And I fully believe that... Even if I was to write their stories, I would have to set them in a world which has allowed those people to become those, in, to act in those ways. There's a moment where all of us, I think, have the capacity to do something which we, ha which we never quite expected we would take that step, and then it's done. And then you have to work out how to live with that. And if you're lucky, or certain class, or so on, the, the system will let you get away with it. White-collar crime is... Uh, is almost worse. It affects so many more people. Mm. Um, but, but writing then, so in, in trying to understand stories and render them, there's still that 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 compassion, as you describe it, is still coming from a place of fury. There is fury here, isn't there? 
Yeah, but I'm really nice. I'm like a really quiet person, actually. <laughs> I'm the one who's in the back reading the book. Yeah, but I am furious. There yeah. is a fury to the book. And that I think that fury comes from a lifetime of, of, of being silenced and watching people from my background continually be told to be grateful and be quiet and stay, stay where you are. And what you were asking me before about um, could a man have have written this book and not being called outrageous and not being called angry and so on, um, an Indian man. Well, I'm British Asian, and this book is a product of that duality, mm. which most of us are forced to navigate by, you know, wearing our jeans underneath our silver kameez and then going out, you know. But there's much more to it than that, because at some point you have to say, here, here I am as this whole body, and the problem is not that I have a split personality, is that there are two worlds that are kept apart from each other through education systems, through structural discrimination and all sorts of other things. And I have to navigate those two worlds as a whole person. Otherwise, I won't survive. But so there's a personal fury at, that, at those edifices, but also a very objective and justified, both are justified, of course, but justified fury at the injustice that you're viewing there, you know, the social injustice, the political injustice. Yes, there is. I think there is. And this idea of being furious, I feel like there is, I think it's in the ether at the moment. And it's not just, it's not the sort of righteous justice of sort of truth or something, because truth is a really complicated idea. And the book's told in five voices. It's mm. all looking at different sides of who, get, who gets to tell the story and how they get to tell it and whose truth we believe. And these are really, these are really um, the, the, the questions that fiction's been asking for centuries, but where we are right now in a political moment, especially here in this country, as we try to think about what our national story is, I think we have to be angry and keep on voicing that anger in ways which help us to make connections with people from different parts of the world who feel it too, and <laughs> for reasons that perhaps our governments have been culpable in. And silent around. Yeah. Right. Could we have a reading? Sure. I've got, I've got two readings. For, I've, I, so I think you could choose the okay. dark one or the light or the hopeful one. I, I'd rather you chose the hopeful one. Hopeful? Yeah. <laughs> Let's do hopeful. Okay. okay. So let me um, just set the scene a bit. So, so this is, this is Gargi. And she is the Goneril character. Um, the book's told from the point of view of the young people in, in, in King Lear. So it's told from the point of view of the three sisters and the two brothers. And they form a loose extended family. And they've all grown up together in, in huge amounts of privilege in New Delhi. And um, she's, just, she's just done something which um, she's, she's just come across a, a living example of her father's violence. He's beaten up a servant um, almost to death. And she has to deal with the fallout. Um, and as she... As she's walking back to um, her home from the servants' quarters where she um, has had to deal with this, she starts to think about how to reverse some of the narratives that she's been forced into. She reaches a circle imprinted on the grass, a bare, bald patch where Sita's engagement canopy has been taken down, every marigold and ribbon removed. She steps into it. One day, songs will be written about what Sita sacrificed, from the raw concrete to the built hotels, yes, but also tiny stitched diamonds within a diamond, every chashm kibulbul, every precious strand of douche. The shawl's business that was their mother's own offering when she married Bapuji, 
and which Babuji wanted to give to Sita in her own right, in her own name. Now, from this scarred place, she will announce that this land and all the land beyond it, all the people who work on it, everyone who is invested in it, everything belongs to Gargi and Radha. They will not sign Bapuji's plan to divide. They will work together to make the company sing. They will found a trust. Perhaps build a small town. Its programs to educate girl children will birth poets, scholars, journalists, better than Nina, editors, future song makers, and translators of stories in every language there is. She will offer her classes in Malayalam and Kannada, in Gujarati and Punjabi, and back again and back again and again, so that every woman can talk to the other without division of borders or minds. Tamil to Telugu, no one will be silenced. Thank you, thank you, she thinks, and she feels she is a girl again, six years old, dressed in her precious hand-loomed Kashmiri Silvakamis, brought back from Srinagar by her mama. How she had loved those loose pyjama, that peasant girl, Kurta. It was black velvet with gold work on the bib. It had a yellow dupatta to tie around her head, fringed like the fortune tellers in the lobbies of the company hotels. The kurta was cut on the bias. It swung around her body when she wore it, and she had danced the roof dance dressed in that, the steps learned from her very first Lottie, a woman she remembers for her agility and aged skin, wrinkled, beautiful, like an elephant's around the eye. She came with Gargi's mother from Srinagar when she was a bride. She died when Gargi was six. Standing in the circle, Gargi crosses her arms over her body, hands held out on either side, imagining Radha's hand taking hers, then another Gargi, another Radha, a Sita, a Nina, and the wife of the poor, scarred man. They step forward and back, a chain of paper dolls, welcoming the seasons as they come. Gargi steps the dance until she is out of breath, her hair entangles and dirt encrusted on her skin. Then she bows and carries on marching, 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 and seeing the garden valley and the pool boys, their sideways glancing eyes. Wonderful. I mean, it's very beautiful. There are the multiple versions of Gargi perpetuating across time, which just, to me, um, the fact that this story, your story, Shakespeare's story, can perpetuate and repeat across time. The same folly, the same hope, the same, um, you know, hope of, of love remains true. It's almost mythic, isn't it? The Lear story is an epic, and it is, and it has lots of mythic elements in it. And, and it's fascinating because Shakespeare actually sets this story outside sort of Judeo-Christian time, mm. um, and he and he does that for, for very felicitous reasons. It just allows a more Panopticon view of gods and goddesses it now allows a kind of connection to nature, but it's also because of, of a very strict legal fact, which is at the time um, there was a law introduced to stop God being represented in certain ways on the stage. So he couldn't set it as a sort of like railing against, um, you know, Christ or whatever, because he would have been blaspheming and. The, the play wouldn't have gone ahead. So it's the freedom that that gives us to, to connect that pagan world, an Iron Age world, where Mer, where, which is set before Merlin's time in Shakespeare, to contemporary India works really quite well. It allows that panopticon version of many gods and goddesses and different ways of thinking about faith um, and justice in a way. Final question, if I may. 
the work you're doing in prisons at the moment with li literature, uh, what, yes. what shape, what form does that take? And what, um, I'm just interested in how that materialises. Okay, so the program's called Learning Together, and I teach a part of it called Writing Together, where I take students from Cambridge University as a way of um, helping them to um, into Whitemore Prison and um, teach them alongside men who have committed crimes. It's a Category A men's prison um, near where I live. And so together they form a writing group and we make an anthology of work over a period of six to eight weeks. Um, it is... Who it, forms the writing group? The prisoners and the students? Yes, they, they learn together, that's okay. the whole point. So they meet each other, they work together and um, they edit each other. They, they, they write. They're just a group of people who are trying to write. <laughs> And that is how the class is run. Because once you, and, I've, and this is not just to do with people who are incarcerated, but I've worked in similar ways in refugee camps where what's happening is that people take an imaginative leap out of themselves and their own situations to, to solve an intellectual problem of how to be a better writer. And as soon as the brain is engaged in that way, they forget all of the baggage that might say, oh, they're looking at me as if I'm entitled, or they're looking at me as if I have done something awful, or, you know, so, so many things fall away, and everybody's just trying to improve their sentences. Um, and the work that comes out of that can be extraordinary. Pretty major. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Pretty.